welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, simulation of Jason Harris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing how uh, seamless this all is, really. It, right? Yeah, and I'm like in a good mood today, happy. So I'm like, am I in the Matrix right now, or what is going on here? Like, yeah, have I, has my mind been pacified by sentient beings? So. Quite possibly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we just wrapped up our season on the films of 1999, but we're coming back to it already. We're doing a little bonus here because the new film, The Matrix Resurrections, is out in theaters. And so we figured we couldn't possibly leave 1999 without talking about The Matrix. Theaters and HBO Max. True, true. That is a good point. But it is out now. People are watching it. And so we decided we should uh, give a revisit to the original Matrix. And Dave just got his booster shot, so he's watching it on his G5 chip implanted in him. <laughs> I can see everything in 4K. Yeah, he's it's just like being in the Matrix. Yeah, he's communicating with Bill Gates right now while they're watching it both. So <laughs> Take the red pill, bro. Yeah. Learn the truth. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. It's too early to we'll get, get into all, that. We'll yeah. get into all of that. Yeah. Sad, sadly, we will yeah. get into all of that later. <laughs> yeah, that's but, true. But for now, The Matrix, in a purer time in 1999, was uh, was a huge sensation. Obviously, this is why we're talking about it. Was a massive, massive hit that grossed 466.3 million dollars on its budget of 63 million, which is a decent sized budget, but still, this thing just became a runaway sensation. It was the fourth highest grossing film of 1999. Uh, it won four Oscars, uh, all four Oscars that it was nominated for, mostly technical stuff, but uh, sound, sound effects, editing, visual effects, of course, uh, and editing, which is often an award that kind of rises above the sort of technical considerations. But all of those uh, Oscars, it won. Yeah, um, I mean, hugely popular. It must have directed itself. And right. there must have. I mean, why would it get a cinematography award for changing the way cinematography is done or anything? I looked up the, uh, you know, best director nominees and we've talked about them and it's like, you know, Laze Halstrom, Cider House Rules. There it is again. Right. You know, some and some of them we really like and some of them were just like, you know, the Wachowskis, they should have had a nomination at least for this. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, and it, it speaks to the general disregard for genre films, although that that that's changed a bit. But certainly in 1999, a sci-fi action blockbuster. Cyberpunk. Right. <laughs> it's not going to get major Oscar nominations. I mean, again, I thought it was pretty impressive that it got up to four and that it won all of them yeah. in competition with some of the probably the big awards movies of that year. So certainly a very, very uh, successful movie. And it was interesting to me, too, looking up reviews because my recollection was, oh, critics loved it. And critics did like it. But a lot of the positive reviews were basically like, eh, this is kind of a cool, like, action-y movie, but there's not really much else to it. And that's so not what we think of as this movie. So it was interesting to see that. Right. There's that mix of, like, it's an action movie, and they kind of touch on philosophy. And then it's like, it's a philosophical movie with tons of action. And I think that the criticisms are fair in that, hey, they do... They do have a philosophy, but are they really 
Are they doing anything more than scratching the surface with that philosophy? I mean, and to me, that's like the idea that you did even that is more than most action sci-fi movies would do. Right, and that right. you could you could integrate it all so well, you know, that this isn't a movie where characters are just sitting around talking about philosophy and there's no action. I mean, the yeah. action and the philosophy and it all seamlessly fits together and moves the story forward that's to me really impressive I, I think you're right it's not like that was the criticism of other ones in this genre like hey you know what would have made judge dread better if they had gone deeper into philosophy or you know johnny mnemonic they they really they really kind of brushed over the Descartian, you know ramifications of it and i agree with you josh yeah um, so it was, I mean, it was popular, of course, with audiences. It did get an A minus from Cinema Score, which is the audience polling service. But uh, and 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 again, and positive reviews. But for example, here's Roger Ebert, who is gave it three out of four stars, but definitely uh, was not as enthusiastic as as maybe he could have been. And, he uh, said, "For those that don't know, Roger Ebert, famous film critic." <laughs> Thank you, James. I thought you were going to say something about him being in the Matrix, but. Nope. Go good, ahead. good contribution. We've never talked about yeah. Roger Ebert before. Yeah, I just wanted to, you know, at 10 seasons in almost, we should, we should preface who he is. Sure. Know. Roger Ebert, film critic, said, <laughs> The Matrix is a visually dazzling cyber adventure full of kinetic excitement, but it retreats to formula just when it's getting interesting. It's kind of a letdown when a movie begins by redefining the nature of reality and ends with a shootout. We want a leap of the imagination, not one of those obligatory climaxes with automatic weapons fire. The Matrix did not bore me. It interested me so much, indeed, that I wanted to be challenged even more. I wanted it to follow its material to audacious conclusions, to arrive not simply at victory, but at revelation. I wanted an ending that was transformational, like Dark Cities and not one that simply throws us a sensational action sequence. I wanted, in short, a third act. And he spends like half the review talking about Dark City, which he loves and yeah. is notorious for loving. And is a movie that really was not a big hit, but kind of was overshadowed by The Matrix in, in, in some ways. But has a cult following. Has a cult following, yeah. Um, and Ebert was a big reason that it did, because he championed it so much. And I think he did like the DVD commentary for it. And anyway... It, it, it seems sort of not particularly relevant anymore, but uh, he talks about it a lot. Yeah. Um, the third act's my favorite part of this movie. So uh, I'm just a peasant who doesn't understand philosophy. I think it's just, uh, it's, it's unfair to characterize it just as an action sequence because those action sequences in the third act change the way filmmaking's done forevermore, you know? Right. I mean, and it's not just, looking at it that way, like from a filmmaker perspective or something where you can say, oh, I really appreciate the innovations here. It's really exciting to watch. It's incredibly entertaining. Right. And all the stuff that you get to there is earned, you know, where Neo is able to um, manipulate the matrix. It's because he has gotten to the point where he believes in his powers and he has learned how to do it where before he wasn't able to do that stuff. Right. So the, the action sequence the, is facilitated by character development. Reinforces and, everything that they've built to. Yes. Right, right. And the, the philosophy and all of that. So, yeah, I mean, again, I'll say this again. I, to me, what is so good about this movie is that 
not just that it has all those elements, but they all fit together and they all contribute to each other. And that's really impressive. You're right, buddy. Thank you. So uh, Todd McCarthy in Variety also is sort of begrudgingly positive, says uh, it's special effects 10, screenplay zero for The Matrix, an eye-popping but incoherent extravaganza of morphing and superhuman martial arts. Ultra-cool visuals that truly deliver something new to the sci-fi action lexicon will make this time-jumping thriller a must-see among genre fans, especially guys in their teens and 20s, for whom the script's pretentious mumbo-jumbo of undergraduate mythology, religious mysticism, and technobabble could even be a plus rather than a dramatic liability. Warner Brothers looks to collect a tidy sum in all markets from this shrewdly packaged head trip. And I mean, he's not wrong that guys in their teens and 20s were big fans of this movie. I mean, that's what we all were when it came out. Zero is like really under underestimating the quality of the screenplay. Though. Yeah, I agree that certain things come off as maybe tried or we've seen it before. But I mean, you know, like we talked about the usage of the philosophy, whether you think it is 100% effective or only partially effective is not 0% effective. If this is zero, what is like your average straight-to-video schlock action movie script? Right, yeah. To give it a zero, I think, is really is is really overly harsh. And yeah, it, maybe not everything is... Maybe not all the dialogue is is super sharp or the philosophy is simplified. But I mean, I think a lot of that is 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 a strength is that if the philosophy were more uh convoluted it wouldn't engage the audience uh, as much you know and like you said we were teenagers 20s whatever when we first saw this and the internet was still new and right and and improving right we we were probably if not on dial up at our homes on like t1 plugins right at college or whatever so i wonder if the idea of a matrix and a simulation, which we know the Wachowskis research and, but you know, now if you say, Hey, are we living in a simulation? People kind of know that's like something pop culturally that people know about. Right. Sure. A lot of it because of this movie, yes. but while this came out, do you think it was just such a new idea in the film form that when he's saying it's 0%, it just maybe all went over his head. I guess. I mean, I'd like to give someone like Todd McCarthy a little more credit than that because he's a smart guy. But yeah, it's it, it to me, it's interesting because it doesn't come off like these critics were like, I didn't get it. They seem to think it's just a bunch of old hat. You know, it's not anything like the 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 special effects, the visuals, that's new and exciting. Yeah. But the story is nothing new. And it's that's not to say that it hasn't drawn from other sources. It definitely has. But the way they put to put it together and the way they present it and the way they can reach an audience with it is new, I think. And and with film you have to present something familiar and twisted for the most part, right? There's that old saying, right? There's only five stories that have ever been told and you're just telling a different version of it. But people like to at least especially with an idea that's so that we think is so different. I remember when this came out, it did feel really different, yeah. right? You need to have something familiar to grab onto in that point in time. Right. No, I, I agree. And again, it was sort of surprising to me how many of these, because I'm like, you know, looking through Rotten Tomatoes or something and seeing all the positives. And yet I look at the full review and there's, again, it's like begrudgingly positive. Are these, are all the reviews you found from well-off 
white guys in their 50s. I mean, are virtually all film critics in 1999 <laughs> well off guys in their 50s? Yes. Well, I mean, that's kind of an interesting thing, right? They're probably on the side of the sentient beings. Yeah. Like, keep these people in the matrix. That may be true. That may be true. So uh, on a more fully positive tip, uh, Kenneth Turan in the LA Times said, a wildly cinematic futuristic thriller that is determined to overpower the imagination the Matrix combines traditional science fiction premises with spanking new visual technology in a way that almost defies description. Like it or not, this is one movie that words don't come close to approximating. Yet because this tale has been on the Wachowskis' minds for so long, it was written before their 1996 debut film, Bound, The Matrix never feels patched together. And its story, constructed though it is from familiar elements and pseudo-mystical musings, is nevertheless strong enough to support the film's rip-roaring visuals. This was one of the few positive reviews that actually gave credit to the writing. Uh, I'm glad that they did, because, you know, the Wachowskis at the time bound 96. Before that, they had sold Assassins, which was probably a better screenplay than the movie was. Yeah, I think, and I wonder if they, didn't they try to get, like, their credit taken I, off that? I think you're probably right. Or, or what happened was, they saw the movie and felt it was so bastardized that they from, said they're just going to direct their own stuff from right. now on. But I think The Matrix, if I'm not mistaken, this original premise was with them since like 1992 or something very far back. And, um, you know, Lorenzo Di Bonaventura signed him to a three picture deal. Um, he told him to go make Bound so they can start proving themselves as directors. And this is, again, such a wild screenplay that maybe they needed to build to this. and. It, it worked out in that way. Yeah, and, and Bound is great. I, I watched it not that long ago because it was the uh, 25th anniversary and I wrote an article on it. And it's a fantastic movie. And it's the kind of thing that uh, could have been made in a much more kind of basic, straightforward way. But you can tell that the way that they directed that movie, the way it looks, uh, which works for that story, but is also clearly them trying to show like, hey, check out what we can do visually and structurally um, that would work in something much broader and grander than this story. Yeah. I mean, this is going to go in the, to the legacy, but uh, Josh and I before, uh, and Dave, we know you're a huge speed racer fan. Oh yeah. But was the matrix, the peak it was 99. The second movie that they made the peak has, have they even come close to getting back there? I mean, this is the most influential action movie of, Okay, yeah, that's true. Know. It's it's hard to, it's hard to top with Star Wars, like that. The right? Peak, exactly. Right? That's like but, that. But I mean, but even the sequels, right? Like, have like Peter Jackson's gotten there again. I'd right. say you know in different ways, and of course with the sequels, I don't think the Wachowskis have. Yeah, yeah, maybe not. But I do love Speed Racer. Right? <laughs> we'll yes, talk. We're, we're very clear on that, Dave. You love Speed I'll Racer. I'll bring it up again later. Yes, we'll we'll yeah. get into more of that um, in a little bit. So, I mean, obviously we all saw this along with everyone when it first came out. Uh, do you remember? Did yeah. you see it in the theater, Jason? Yeah, I saw it before everyone. Again, this is oh. 99. This was the, the BU years when I got to see everything in advance. I saw it with my friend Brian McNamara, and who was a, and I think probably works in the computer business still, but he was like a super smart computer guy. So like he was just in love with this movie. I think I need, I've you know seen it multiple times. First watch, I think it was like overwhelming. I liked it, but maybe didn't understand all of it. And then you go back and you pick up more pieces and this and that. Um, and you know what's funny is that's the way I remember it. 
but maybe none of that happened. Maybe he <laughs> saw it and it's like, you got to go see this movie. And then I did. And then over time, you know, uh, you just pick up more and more, but a fan from the beginning and was so excited for the sequels, which was mm. my mistake. Yeah. That was many people's mistakes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I definitely saw this in the theater when I was in college and I'm pretty sure I had for whatever reason seen bound. And so was already excited about hey these directors who made that movie are making a new movie and i'm looking forward to it um because i had loved bound and i owned it on vhs and everything yeah you know josh we talked a lot in this season about like the blockbuster discoveries that i kind of pointed your way right i remember you always being a fan of bound that was always one of your favorites yeah and i don't know when, why or how i first saw that movie but yeah i definitely loved it and so i remember seeing this in the theater and i remember um I don't know if it was when I saw this or just around the same time when I went to the theater to see something else, but I saw my philosophy professor coming out of this movie and just talking about how awesome it was. That's so, cool. You know, so did you guys talk about the philosophy of it? I mean, it, we were just in the theater lobby and I was like, oh, hey, what did you see? And they saw The Matrix and it was good. And then that was pretty much it. And we didn't talk about it in class. or. That's anything. what I meant. Did like you guys ever follow? Up no, no. I mean, I, who knows if later on he you know, ever included it in a philosophy class. But I think it was probably too new at that point to really include like on the syllabus and was just just like intro to philosophy where you cover like the major figures of western philosophy yeah i mean i didn't really i wasn't a philosophy major i didn't really get much further than that but i was taking that intro class and he was the professor uh professor alexander george and um just i think that was a sort of a validation in a way of you know are the nerdy college kids who went to see this cool action movie and oh but also our philosophy professor yeah i mean i jokingly too. mentioned descartes but you know a lot of the you can go layers and layers of philosophy in this and go back to that and descartes would be someone you would study in that intro to philosophy class yeah and i'm sure I that think. we did i'm sure that we i don't therefore remember. i am yeah oh. <laughs> yeah i was i wasn't super engaged with philosophy i think i was taking that class mainly just to fill my schedule or whatever um but but it was still again it was cool to have that that sort of endorsement from the philosophy professor um so Dave, well, why didn't you get his review for this segment? I should have uh, emailed him and said, do you remember how I was in your one class uh, <laughs> 22 years ago? Can you give me a movie review? For that, my would have been, that would have been nice. Yeah. Dave. I, much like Jason, I liked it, didn't love it in the theater. Um, but I remember when I fell in love with it, it was my first time ever buying weed myself. <laughs> and I went to this guy's apartment, this guy Levi. And uh, he had it playing. It was also my first time ever seeing like a surround sound system in someone's house. And I ended up sitting there with him and watching it the whole See, time. And I was just like, this movie rules. That's that's something we lose now with like the uh, legalization of weed where you right. can just go into the Apple stores of weed. You don't sit with your drug dealer for two hours and learn mm -hmm. about a movie while you get high together. Um, but I want to correct you, Dave. I did really love it i just didn't mm. understand all of gotcha it, so, yeah. gotcha that's fair so uh anything else you want to say about the background of this jason well we kind of just mentioned that whole um you know the whole aspect of like this being such a different type of screenplay that it took a while to get on the screen lorenzo di bonaventura joel silver early fans of it studio kind of like the script didn't want to spend all that money but then they agreed to this budget and then they went and shot in Australia. And uh, one cool anecdote from that Brian Raftery book, the uh, best movie year ever was that the studio, they, they went over budget, not a surprise, right? 
And the studio started saying, hey, here are the scenes we're going to cut. So when one day when the movie broke for lunch while they were filming, the Wachowskis went to their trailer, got like some burgers, did not come back to set. And eventually people were like, hey, are you coming back to set? And they're like, well, if they're going to cut those scenes, then we don't have a movie. So you don't need us and you can get someone else to make this movie. And the editor, uh, Zach uh, Steinberg, who won the Oscar, kind of sent over some of the sequences to the studio. And they were like, oh, yeah, well, we'll just give them the money because these guys know what they're doing. And they finished the movie. They they uh, power played uh, the studio out and it worked out for everybody. Yeah. I mean, and that's impressive because they're I mean, they're not first time directors, but obviously they're relatively unknown, unproven filmmakers. And to have that audacity and that confidence. And I think that's something that the Wachowskis have have had like from the very beginning. And, you know, we'll talk again more about their other films, but like them or not, they are very uncompromising and they've yeah. been that way from since the, before they were famous. Right. Their vision is their vision and that's what they're doing. Yeah. Which, which I, I, I certainly appreciate. So uh, we'll come back then in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on the matrix. Welcome back to awesome movie year in this special bonus episode for our season on the films of 1999. We are talking about one of the most influential films of all time, yep. really. Uh, and it's amazing that we can say that about multiple movies that came out in 1999. Pretty cool. Um, but here we are talking about The Matrix. Um, and, and we all liked it. But so, Jason, you're, you have said, you know, you saw this the first time and you liked it, but maybe you didn't quite get it. Yeah. I don't think, like I said, at that point in time, the idea of living in a simulation was probably over my head, right? Like how this worked, which world is which, and how do they get in and out of the simulation, which still is not really my favorite part of the movie. You just go to a phone and we kind of transfer. Well, it has to be a phone. certain phone. It has to be the right connection that the operator can. Uh, that's why they have to say like, oh, go to this particular place yeah. to the phone there. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's clear. Uh, I mean, again, we know it's ahead of its time in a lot of ways, and that probably was one of the ways in the storytelling. Um, so that said, like, there's so much to like, even without that. And I do like that part now. You know, it just took me a while to catch up to it, I think. I mean, everything here, and I'm, you know, Dave, eventually you'll talk about the music, how well it fits. And I mean, the, the, the set design, the costumes are awesome, right? The colors that we use. And then just those, um, what I think is so cool is every action sequence is really good, but it keeps escalating. And a lot of the time you don't have that. You have like a huge car crash in the middle of act two and you're like, oh, that was the best scene in the movie, right? But all these action sequences just escalate, escalate, escalate. So when you get to act three, like the climax, it pays off so many ways. I thought, you know, maybe a criticism is, do we need that last chase where Neo's running after he saves the day? And, but then he dies and he comes back to life because of the love and all this. And it all works to me. Yeah. The love is the one thing that doesn't work in this film to me that the love, not only just the love story between Neo and Trinity, because we barely understand them as sort of having a personal connection. And we know True. almost nothing about Trinity, like as a character. Yeah. Um, but then that's like, okay, fine. It's kind of a background element and it's not a huge deal. Um, but when 
that climax hinges on essentially Neo getting, you know, true love's kiss, kiss like, of he's, life, right, yeah. like he's sleeping beauty or something. Mm. Um, that to me was like a little bit too far of a stretch. Um, and, and they stretched that even further in the sequels, but that to me was the one moment that, I mean, in a movie full of insane, crazy stuff, that was like the one moment where I was like, uh, I don't know if I buy it. Well, that. I mean, and there's again, so much action. I don't want to misplace it, but isn't it after the kiss that he gets up and then he's able to stop the bullets and everything. Right. Right. So, so to me, I think it's not just that it's that it like has completed whatever transformation he needs to become the one and have that peace within himself and kind of understand all of his capabilities. So that's why I think, I think you're, what you're saying is totally fair. And I think that I could argue this side of that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely meant to represent another part of his journey. You know, he accepts Morpheus's teachings and accepts his sort of destiny and also then opens himself to the love of Trinity. And all of that is part of this kind of holistic journey that he's on to become the one. But you are right. There is no development of that love story. And, you know, would an extra 10 minutes of that have helped the movie? Probably not. No, no. I mean, I don't necessarily want more of it. I mean, I felt like I could have almost done without it entirely. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it weirdly devalues Trinity as a character because the movie opens with her. The movie opens with like, look at her and how badass she is. And that's a refreshing thing that especially in 1999, you don't see as much. Um, and there was one point, I mean, I, I have seen this movie enough that I knew where everything was going watching it this time. But, you know, there's a whole arc here of Neo thinking that he's not the one, right? He goes to the Oracle and the Oracle says, sorry, kid, it's not you. And I was thinking, what would it wouldn't have been fascinating? If it turned out that Trinity was the one. That's what I thought they were going with in the original, you know, the first time I saw it. Right. So. And, you know, where they're they're trying to subvert the idea of this chosen one narrative. And and they do some other stuff with it in the sequels in order to do that. But to me, that would have been great. And, and it would have also been real development for Morpheus because his whole character is based on the idea that he spent his life searching for the one and he's certain that Neo is the one. And if it was like, hey, actually the real one was there in front of you all this time with this other person. I, I don't know. I felt like that could have been narratively more interesting. So why then, why does that Oracle scene, other than there is no spoon that we call back, right? Why, why is that scene there for her to say, I mean, we know that she says you're going to have to sacrifice yourself or sacrifice Morpheus, but why does she tell him that he's not the one? Well, I think it goes to what you were just saying about him sort of having to self-actualize or whatever that if she just tells him he's the one, then he believes it because she told him, but he has to believe it from inside himself. Mm. So he has to think that he's not the one and then come to feel that full confidence in being the one from himself and not from some external source. It's very Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> karate here, karate here. You know, not karate here, Josh. So yeah. Pointing to my head and my heart. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's a great visual for our listeners. <laughs> Well, that's why I I mentioned it. So, Josh, yeah, I mean, you know, one thing I that threw me off in Act One, which I think again is very fun and like the office is very fight clubby and everything like that, right? Is the opening sequence that you mentioned, which is very cool, where they're chasing Trinity, um, and they need to get to Trinity, right? And then the agents implant that um, bug inside of Neo, 
So now they can follow him. And then Trinity says, meet me at, you know, Adams Street or whatever. And then Neo goes to Adams Street, but there are no agents there. If they have a bug inside of him, aren't they able to hear and follow him at this point? Well, they show up eventually, right? I mean, she's she's trying to get the bug out of him while they're in a car chase, right? Isn't that uh, what happens? Th- I thought they take the bug out. Uh, you might be right. I, yeah, I, no, they're 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 in that car chase with the and I forget her name. The the blonde. Yeah. Uh, take your shirt off. Yeah, yeah. She says and to she, him, she's driving yeah. while Trinity is in the back getting the bug. So I think you may you know you may be right that they don't show up immediately. And I mean that's one thing that you just kind of have to go with that the agents, even though they're these like super capable computer programs that theoretically they should just be able to like teleport anywhere instantly within the matrix. They're still subject to like the laws of physics theoretically within the matrix. You know, they have to get a car and chase the people at normal car speed or whatever. And that's just a conceit that we have to accept within the matrix. Right. One thing that you, you know, you're talking about other, and I'm sure everyone, you know, all these people, it's like putting the track list of your favorite band together for an album, right? Like, wouldn't it have been cool if instead of the sequels following, you know, uh, the Neo story, because, you know, we know how that turned out. If we could have followed an agent, maybe Agent Smith, uh, a sentient being who wanted out of the Matrix, like he says at the end, like he doesn't want to be this anymore. I think that could have been an awesome spinoff of this whole thing. Yeah, well, I mean, you do get some of that in the sequels in that there are new program characters that we meet who are uh, rebelling against the matrix or siding with the humans and stuff. And it's an interesting idea that I feel like doesn't really quite come off in the sequels. And, and, and they do, um, you know, again, this is getting into sort of what we'll talk about later, but in the animatrix as well, the animated anthology spinoff movie, um, they explore other kind of positions for people and programs and whatever in the matrix that are interesting. But uh, yeah, I mean, this movie was so popular and it was so popular because of the story of Neo and Trinity and Morpheus that obviously any sequel that was ever going to be made would have to follow those characters and their story. And I'm not against that. I wanted it to be, like we said, Lord of the Rings quality and it was Matrix sequels quality. Yes, know, so. yes. <laughs> um, but look, and, and you know, it's, it's our nature to go like, well, what could have been, what could have been? But like, again, there's so many good things in this movie and we all pretty much love this one. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean really my my thoughts on like what could have been are were really triggered by that one thing that I think doesn't work which is the love story. And that that makes me think about how is Trinity treated as a character and and takes me on that that journey of what if we did this with her instead. But it's good and I think because of that journey that Neo goes on and the scene with the oracle saying you're not the one and the way he has to actualize himself that we do buy him as this savior figure that even if it's sort of a cliche and it's one of the elements of this movie that's been done before the chosen one and all that i i was still it's still a triumphant thing at the end when he becomes the one and he can uh stop the bullets and and fight the agents and it's really it's cool great. Yeah, yeah it's great and the music just escalates it what do you think happens to there is no spoon kid? I would like to have seen. He's clearly ahead of uh, a lot of people with his abilities. I would like to see what happens with that kid. Too. Yeah, all those other. I, and, and that's the funny thing, too, So because Neo goes to the Oracle to find out if he's the one. And he sits in the, the like waiting room with all the other potential ones. And they're all kids except Neo. And so adult Neo is like, ha, kids, 
I'm the one, you suck. Yeah, but then he thinks he's not the one. Well, right, but it turns out he is, and because he is, it means the on all those kids are not the one. But that kid, you know, there is no spoon, yeah. is understanding things on a different level. True. So even if he's not the one, he could still be of use in other ways. He could right? be. Sadly, we never we never get to find out yeah, about Yeah, but that. I mean, that's just such a fun little uh, callback, you know, very, there is no spoon. You right. Know, he just realizes it, and... um. You know, Keanu Reeves at this time, his career was kind of uh, swinging down, shall we say? Yeah, and this, a little like, bit. This totally lifted him up. And, uh, you know, I look over all the uh, potential casting and no one could have done Neo, right? Yeah, I mean, Keanu Reeves is great. I mean, and this was a time he's 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 so beloved now, but this was a time when he still got a lot of criticism yeah. for his acting. And I still think as great as Keanu is as a person, he is a limited actor. But I think in the parts that he's right for, he's really good. And Neo is a part that he's fully right yeah, for. Yeah. Actually, let me tell you the names I read. Dave, can we have some alternate casting music? Wow, that was <laughs> a alternate good casting. one right there. Yeah. Nice work. Very matrix -y. Yeah. Well, we talked about it in Wild Wild West. Will Smith turned the part down. He said he was not a mature enough actor and wouldn't have been right, which is cool of him to say, but instead... He made Wild Wild West, which wasn't as cool. Yeah, no, definitely not a mature uh, role in Wild Wild West there. Nicholas Cage, that could have been fun. <laughs> could have been oh, a boy. different one. I am the one, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Brad Pitt, he probably would have been great. Although I think Brad Pitt gets better with age. You know, he's yeah, like well, a fine wine. That right. Guy. Well, we talked about how good he is in Fight Club. Yeah. Yeah. So he had his good year. Val yeah. Kilmer. The movie probably wouldn't have ever gotten made because I thought Val Kilmer was going to be Morpheus. Yeah, they did mention him for that. And then in that book, they mentioned that the Wachowskis met with Val Kilmer. And within two minutes, they knew he was wrong for the movie because he tried to convince him that Morpheus should be the main character and it should revolve around him. Yeah. Which, hey, could have been a cool story. It just Well, yeah, nice but story. it's not about that. It's about Val yeah. Kilmer wanting to be the main character. Yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio, I think, would have. Obviously, in that age range, but was he mature enough? I, I don't feel know. like he was maybe a little young for it right. at the time. Yeah, right. And then uh, Johnny Depp almost got it. He would have been good. We know that. And then they were going to rewrite it for Sandra Bullock, which would have been cool, I think. That would have been interesting. And I think, you know, going a bit to what I was saying about what if Trinity was the one. So, yeah, interesting. But I think you know, this is this is a, like the perfect part for Keanu. Yeah, right. And he's done it twice now, right? Uh, this and John Wick. Oh, right. I was going to say, no, he's done three matrices. No, I'm saying, right. well, I mean, he, he's kind of had, no, he's had like four perfect roles for him over his career, right? Bill and Ted, John Wick, this, and Point Break, I'd say. All right. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. that is fair. Um, yeah. But but I right, I think that's the thing about Keanu is that when he finds that right role, yeah, he he's really sinks his teeth yeah. into it. Yeah, he does. Morpheus, other than Kilmer, Samuel L. Jackson, we know is great. Yeah. Gary Oldman. That would have been great. interesting. They're all yeah. great. And yeah. Fishburne just, Really eats it up. He's he's great in this too. He know? is. He's so good. And he is the one who's saddled with all of that exposition in the middle of the movie, which I think is handled incredibly well. And the way they visualize it all, it doesn't feel just like him giving a lecture. But that's a tough thing for an actor to make emotionally resonant. And he does a good job. Yeah. With that. And that's where some of those criticisms are in the philosophy where he's spouting it. But what he said is, you know, as people were reading the script and they didn't really understand it. He said he understood it very clearly, and I think that confidence comes off in his performance. Yeah, and he has this maturity. I was I was looking things up for this. 
And I, I did would not have guessed that he's only three years older than Keanu Reeves. Yeah, and he, he looks comes older. off as such as and not just that he looks old, but he just has Mature. this wisdom. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, Trinity. Uh, well, we know Jada Pinkett Smith did audition. She said she didn't have the chemistry with Keanu. What if it was Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith as the stars here? But she was in the sequels as yes. Niobe or Niobe, Niobe right? Yeah. Uh, Selma Hayek. I don't uh, think this would have been yeah. good. And you know who was offered the role but had to turn it down? Janet Jackson. Wow. I, I uh, Yeah. Yeah, I don't know about that. I feel like, I mean, Carrie Ann Moss, and we'll talk about, you know, never became a huge star, but she's great in this role. I, you know, that is one of the things I think she uh, could be. She had, had this come out now, and you look at like a Charlize Theron in her career as an action hero, and even like Angelina Jolie a little bit. I think Carrie Ann Moss today, if this had come out, would be like one of those really good female action stars who could have kept kept that level going and everything yeah no i i think she could have and she's she's great in this i mean the casting overall like joey pants come on they love joey pants they you do know that, yes so, yeah. yeah but uh i mean he's great as as uh cypher the guy who betrays them and because you you believe like obviously joey pants is great at being sleazy yeah he's always sleazy yeah but but you believe his like honest motivation desire to just be in the matrix because they've set yeah. up the whole dichotomy really really well between those two worlds and you understand why he would do something like that so you know i mean obviously he's not going to come back but in a way it's disappointing that he's not in the sequels because right. he's such a good character yeah you know the only other one that i had read was um and i just like talking about this i'm not going to keep going but like the other one was for agent smith jean renault who is very cool but Hugo Weaving, what a unique characterization he came up with that has become like, like, I know he's in like the Lord of the Rings, like we talk about, but I never think of him in the Lord of the Rings. I always think of him as Agent Smith. Like he did such an interesting job with this role, I think. Right. And I think he might have uh, gotten, you know, the typecasting from this more than anyone else. But yeah, I mean, he's. He's perfect and he certainly wasn't a big star. And I don't know if if shooting in Australia was the reason that they got him in this film because he's uh, well, he's not Australian, but he was he worked in Australia most of his career. Um, but whatever the reason, yeah, he he's great. And and Smith is, you know, he's he's a robot, essentially, and he could be not much of a character. But Hugo Weaving gives him just the right amount of personality. And I think I believe that about his character when we find out that he doesn't want to be doing this, that he has kind of uh, overcome whatever programming there is to really be sentient. I really believe that in that. Yeah. I mean, he has weirdly also a journey as a character alongside the human characters. And that's not something you expect from a robot villain or even need necessarily. I mean, all he needs to be for the movie to work is just an obstacle for the characters to overcome, but yeah. he's more than that. Yeah. And I do like that they picked them literally the most like Smith Jones, right. the most obvious last names for all of the, them. Uh, Josh, how about uh, Yen Wu Ping, the famed uh, martial arts film director and fight choreographer who's done directed Junkin Master. He was the fight choreographer for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Kill Bill, and really is an MVP in what he was able to do to get these fight sequences going. Yeah, I mean, that's the key thing, is that combination of the special effects and influences from sci-fi movies and comic books that the American viewers would have been probably pretty familiar with, 
but also all that martial arts and the the use of the wire stunts and stuff that are from uh you know chinese and and uh japanese martial arts films and japanese uh action films and anime and all this stuff that the Wachowskis were deeply into, but right. that mainstream American audiences probably, I mean, are far more so now, but weren't that familiar with and in I, 1999. I was not, I yeah. admit it. I was not, that all looked really new to me. Right. And then I, you know, like when we covered old boy, right. When we talked about that great train tracking shot, it's interesting because this was influenced by, you know, uh, all the types of films you've said. And then, you know, you look at this uh, sequence in here where they're fighting in the lobby and in the train station and you, they break up the tracking shot, but you see that influence moving back towards Asian cinema as well. Right. And it's definitely a conversation. I mean, you know, again, we get to the Animatrix and so many of these Japanese anime filmmakers that influenced the Wachowskis then get to play in the world of the Matrix in that film. So it's certainly a conversation. And, you know, and I think it's to their credit, too, that they're not just taking from these things, that they're not hiring some American guy to choreograph like, oh, make stunts that look like this movie. They go right to the source yeah. and get the guy who did it and in China. Tarantino is another one. Um, I, I want to, it's really kind of fun reading about how they developed the fight sequences because Wu Ping, you know, they had like a dojo set up. They've training for four months. So he would watch these actors and he would figure out what each one was good at. And he would build the fight sequences around that, around their personalities and around their physical abilities which I don't think, I mean, what a cool way to build, you know, to really focus in on their strengths. Like, you know, Keanu Reeves had uh, spinal fusion surgery right before this. So he could, he, he was in like a neck brace. He couldn't move. So they let him like punch and watch other movies, but he doesn't really kick a lot of the movie. He does that one like high kick that you see. And the reason is, is because he couldn't train for it. And um, I just think that's a really cool way to develop a sequence based on people's strengths. Yeah, and and it gives him a unique fighting style, and you see that especially like in that climax when he's finally the one, and he's uh, sort of slowly fighting off Agent Smith and just moving his arm very yeah. gracefully or whatever, and that's the kind of thing that doesn't require a lot of spinal movement or whatever, but it really expresses the mastery that Neo now has over the Matrix and over fighting. Yeah. Um, do you have any favorite sequences? I mean, we've talked about a lot of them, but yeah, I mean, the, the lobby shootout is, is just amazing. Um, the, the shot, just a single shot that's, uh, looking up at the helicopter and you just see the rain of bullet casings is, I mean, that's like an iconic shot, but to me, yeah. that's just, is still just, it's something that visually, and I mean, maybe it was a, a quote from some film that I've never seen, but to me, it's just visually like. No one else would have done that. And that's what I love. Yeah. I mean, so to go back um, to that lobby sequence you're talking about where Trinity jumps off the wall, right? And she injured herself on that. And, you know, it's interesting that they made these actors pretty much do all of their own stunts for as much as possible. And she was physically really unable to. And then she pulled it off in like one perfect take, right? And sometimes that's what it takes. But um, you're talking about that. I mean, obviously, we have to talk about bullet time, which became one of the essential and most, uh, I don't know, whether it's ripped off or influential, like everyone does bullet time since the Matrix did bullet time, which is, right. which was, you know, took them a long time to figure out how to do that with like hundreds of still cameras and green screen. And we're going to be moving this camera, you know, a motion camera while we're taking still pictures, like really incredible the way they did that. 
Yeah, it is. And I feel like weirdly, that's one of the things that's like maybe not quite as impressive when you watch it now because it's been ripped off and it's been used in so many things that are not good. Right. Um, but just the straight action, the more uh, traditional stunts and whatever, all of that is just and the way it's shot, too. It's always clear who is where and who is doing what and where, you know, what what are the characters sort of who's got the advantage and things like that, that often are lost in, in action movies, especially ones that are so special effects driven. And they always hold on to that. I let, I mentioned the set design and I know they tried to do as much in like real uh, locations as possible. So, you know, the train station, for instance, looks and feels real, even though maybe it's not, you know, I, I thought the set design was, was really important to giving this, this kind of grimy feel of what, is not good about the matrix, you know? Right. And you want to look at, I mean, they shot it in Australia, in Sydney, but it needs to look like it could be anywhere. That's I felt it looked like Los Angeles to me. Right. And, but I think that's, what's good is that you could say, Oh, it looks like Los Angeles or, Oh, it looks like Chicago. It look, you know, it it looks like a city. It's a a city. city, Right. right? Exactly. And that's what it's meant to be. So I think that comes off. Well, Dave, jump in here. Oh, I was just going to say uh, when when Neo first wakes up in the real world in those pods, I mean, that's a really awesome, like, sci-fi set piece, I guess. Like, yeah. it's really cool and, and unique. And I don't know that there's ever been anything quite like that. I think now there has been a right. lot of those. Yeah, right? yeah. But that that really is a jarring moment, too. I mean, we're familiar with it now, but that really, the first time is like, oh, this is what they're dealing with. This is what the real world is really like. And he's in this vat of goo and, Mm. you know, all of that when we just saw him as this cool kung fu fighting guy or whatever. Yeah, all of that stuff is great. That sequence, I think they shot that last and Keanu Reeves lost like 15 pounds. He shaved his entire body and he said people wouldn't make eye contact off-putting it's I weird guess. well I, yeah. I feel like more than anything if you have no eyebrows that looks that looks weird you could yeah. shave basically everything else but the eyebrows is what I, that's and like. i mean keanu reeves you know he's pretty much looked the same his whole career right yeah so if you're looking at him and he's just a hairless <laughs> man in every way i could see how that could just be like what what is happening right now. right right so so jason would you take the red pill or the blue pill I'd like to think I would take the red pill, but now that the red pill has been bastardized. Well, no, from the perspective of the Matrix, let's not get into the political uh, ramifications of it in in our world. I think I'd like to think I would take the red pill, but I think you would take the blue pill. Oh, 100%. (laughs) 100% I would take the blue pill, and I'm very sympathetic to old old Cypher in this film. It's like 40 degrees out right now, and I still have the air conditioning on in my house. I would definitely take the blue pill. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I like my creature comforts, but I also like, uh, you know, shaking up the system and everything. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm good without that. But (laughs) What if they told you, hey, hey, bro, you might be the one, like, then would you? I don't want to be the one, man. There's so much responsibility. Yeah, exactly. A lot of work. Yeah. So no, definitely, definitely not. But I, I will say you were asking, you know, did we talk about the Matrix in my philosophy class? And we didn't talk specifically about the Matrix, but there's definitely, you know, philosophical ideas, the idea of being like a brain in a vat, which and I'm not sure what philosopher originated that idea, but that's definitely a big thing. Like, you know, if there was the chance in reality, it's indistinguishable from current reality and you could, you know, live the life that you would always want, you know, but it would be, it would be fake, but you wouldn't know it was fake, you know, would you do it? And that's a big philosophical question. Right. 
And now there is a lot of people, uh, the, the idea that we might be living in a simulation has gained traction. I know Elon Musk said it's about a 50% chance. And you know that Elon Musk is the most uh, insightful. What and- does Joe Rogan think, Josh? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Well, I think the mention of Elon Musk is a way for us to uh, move on to the next segment. But first, uh, should we rate the Matrix out of five uh, agents? I don't know what. Five delicious cookies made by the Oracle. Oh, those do seem delicious. Yeah. So I'm going to give it four out of five. And I do think this is a great film. Yeah, I agree. A four, four for me. And the last 35 minutes are um, one, of my, one of the best act threes that I remember in film. Yeah. Dave? I'm going four and a half. All right. Yeah. Cool. Half a cookie extra for Dave. Oh, yeah. Mm, you fatty. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of The Matrix. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this special bonus episode for our season on the films of 1999. We are talking about The Matrix, and and for the legacy, I mean, given when this is coming out, maybe we should start with The Matrix Resurrections, the new film that is out now, but that none of us have seen yet. Well, it's out, at the time of recording, we're about, what, 10 days from it. Yeah, but as as this is released, it is uh, is out, people are able to see it. But since we are talking about the future, Josh, you can listen to our thoughts on Dave's special Piecing It Together. Uh, Matrix uh, extravaganza episode, which we have already both recorded segments for in the future and is also out now, right, Dave? Possibly. I, I'm, yeah, I'm getting mixed up here. We're we're, putting, you're, Dave's you're, doing you're, an episode. You're like obligating Dave to record something that <laughs> he I feel said like he gonna, hasn't fully committed to He yet. said he, he it, did commit to it. It's we talked happening. About I'm it. just trying to figure out dates, but yeah. uh, it, it, it's happening. If you sure. want to know yeah. what we think of Matrix Resurrections, it will be on the producer dave's i don't even know uh, can we call it a sister podcast because i feel like at this point we're kins we're sisters here yeah guys. we're sisters yeah. sister sister you yeah. know you're tia i'm tamara yeah josh is the little teddy from the I, other your, your metaphor is really losing right here <laughs> i mean we're we're going to be on uh, piecing it together look for the matrix resurrection episode and we'll we'll have our thoughts on yes that. yeah piece that together dave but, uh, but we'll try but but josh you know that's the you know hey 20 years later everyone's excited but should we really be excited given what's gone on with the matrix sequels i mean i hope so and again people will know the answer to that by the time they listen to this but um certainly yeah it's fair for you to wonder that uh there were two sequels in 2003 the Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions, which, I mean, you're talking about Peter Jackson. They kind of pulled the Peter Jackson by shooting those back to back and also releasing them like six months apart. And I think the Wachowskis wanted it to be even closer and the studio decided there needed to be more space that are generally regarded as very disappointing, um, which I feel like is fair. Uh, I rewatched both of them recently and The Matrix Reloaded has its moments. Um, and it's interesting, Jason, you were talking about how so many action movies have like one cool car chase in the second act and that's it. And that really describes The Matrix Reloaded. It has this amazing, amazing car chase, which to be fair is like 20 minutes long or something. It's as good as any action sequences in the original, but story-wise, the movie definitely uh, falls short. It has a lot of, to me... Uh, what the original avoids, which is it just stops cold for characters to deliver these long philosophical treatises that are not interesting um, and come from new characters that we haven't seen before. So 
that's disappointing. The Matrix Revolutions, I feel like, is super disappointing, is barely even goes into the Matrix. It's almost all about Zion, which is much better uh, as an idea in the original than it is when they finally show it to you in the sequels. So, um, yeah, disappointing. Jason, I know you you were adamantly against rewatching those. I was so disappointed in them. I, I mean, you know, there's only so much time we have in this world and or in this simulation. I just have other movies that I have to be watching right now. Um, and I remember just disliking them so much. And they're long. They're they, not, you know. Yeah, they're about they're about as long as the original. They're not longer, at least. Josh, I have a question for you about this. Okay? Yeah. Now, and, you know, we've talked about trilogies on this show before and obviously Lord of the Rings. Now, Lord of the Rings, when they developed it, right, Peter Jackson had developed the idea of making three movies based on this material that already existed. The Matrix is something the Wachowskis came up with. And as far as I know, they were just going to make The Matrix, and then it became so popular that they did these two sequels. I'm wondering if it hurt that they did not have, you know, this idea planned out as fully as something like those Lord of the Rings uh, movies. I mean, I think it quite possibly did. And one of the things is that uh, that I noticed and that someone, uh, I think Matt Singer on Letterboxd also pointed out that the way that the original movie ends is essentially ignored in those mm. sequels because it ends with Neo, who is now, you know, fully actualized as the one making this phone call to one assumes like agent Smith, I'm going to take, I'm coming for you. I'm going to take, and that's not what happens in the sequels at all. It's back to the machines are coming for the people. Mm. And the other thing that is so important in the original matrix that agent Smith needs to find Morpheus and kidnap him and torture him so he can get the codes to Zion. Yeah. Never mentioned again, the machines are able to invade Zion without the codes. Their codes never come up. It's not important at all. So it definitely feels like, yeah, it it really feels like they, you know, they put those things in the original, not thinking that they would need to be followed up on. And then when they needed to make a follow-up movie, they're like, oh, uh, we don't know what to do with that stuff. So let's just forget. Yeah. But it seems like their stories would be there for that. Right. You would think, but I mean, and it's not like someone else took over. It's those same filmmakers and they, for whatever reason, decided that wasn't the direction to go in. So Josh, the first one, the one we're talking about, made, as you said, $466.3 million. There was at the box office. There was such excitement for the second one. It made $739 million at the box office. And it was so disappointing that the third one made $427.3 million, which, of course, oh, you know, is a lot of money. But still, like, it's a drop. It's a drop. That's it's a, a huge drop, drop of yeah. $300 million. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I definitely... The overall impression at the time was these movies are disappointing. And yeah. I think I think much like the Star Wars prequels, which came out around the same time, Yeesh. these movies have been by some people reassessed. And you go on Letterboxd now and there are people who are giving all, you know, both of these sequels five stars. And, you know, these movies are brilliant and underrated. And, you know, even occasionally people claiming that they're better than the first one. And I don't agree with that, but there's certainly that following. Those are probably the same people who have corrupted the idea of taking the red pill josh so <laughs> i don't think so i really well, well we've referenced it we should at least talk about what we're talking about yeah i mean uh right wing QAnon conspiracy theorists yeah. say taking the red pill is not listening 
to what you're being told, but literally they're listening to what they're being told. <laughs> right. I mean, and, and, and these are all, you know, sort of right wing groups that have co-opted this, that have wildly misunderstood the message of this film. Yeah. And, and the fact that this was made by two trans filmmakers. Wonderful. As like a metaphor for their, you know, journeys that they were going on. And then it's co-opted by people who essentially hate people like that. Right. To get into that, Josh, did, uh, what did you, as you said, this is a metaphor for those journeys. Did you, did you see or feel a lot of kind of thematic elements that kind of relate to, um, you know, them transitioning here? I mean, I think you can see some of that now being aware of what, you know, what, what their personal lives became. And I think it's quite possible that some trans people saw that even when this movie initially came out but yeah absolutely the idea of you know i keep saying the self-actualization right, truth versus yeah coming into you your know, true self yeah. being able to accept it and you know waking up to being who you are and not who other people have told you to be all of that stuff absolutely i do want to correct myself on one thing because i said now look i haven't watched sensate which people do like on Netflix. I said I really didn't like anything that they did after this, but I did like V Fire Vendetta. I thought that was a very good movie. Yeah, which they did not direct. Um, they wrote uh, right, right, uh, yeah. and it's and it's based on a graphic novel. So you yeah. know they wrote it based on the uh, Alan Moore and David Lloyd graphic novel, and James McTeague, who's an assistant director on The Matrix, uh, is the director of V for Vendetta. And, and on this new one, the the siblings are not both directing this it is not a wachowski's film it is a wachowski film. right lana wachowski is the sole director on the matrix resurrections and she co-wrote it with um david mitchell who is the author of the novel cloud atlas that the wachowskis made into a film uh and there's another co-writer i forget who that is but yeah i mean if we we kind of skip ahead they have uh I, it seems amicably kind of split up in terms of their artistic interests with lana sticking with this sci-fi grand world building. She was the sole showrunner on the second season of Sense8. She's the sole director on The Matrix Resurrections, whereas Lily has gone into this more grounded comedy drama world working on the show Work in Progress um, with Abby McEnany, I think is how you pronounce her name. A highly acclaimed show. Yes, on on Showtime. But it's, you know, it's this kind of grounded relationship dramedy. It's It's... Seems like it's it's a far cry from what we've expected from the Wachowskis. But if we're talking about, um, you know, we talked about the journey of transitioning. That's all about a trans comedian. Is that correct? Um, she's not trans, the main character, but there are definitely other characters, like significant characters on the show, who are. Okay, yeah, because I haven't watched. I do know that they kind of involve a lot of these themes yes. about sexuality and identity and everything. Yeah, I haven't watched it either, but that's definitely seems like what it is. And one of the reasons that Lily Wachowski works on it. So, um, but it is interesting that they, you know, seemed like they were so in sync, the two of them. I mean, they would only do joint right. interviews well, and. Well, even in that book, you know, that I always reference, they had uh, one of like the producers was like, uh, do you guys, do you, at the time they were guys, right? So uh, they were. There was Larry and Andy at the time. That was, yeah, that, that's uh, the time. That's how they were presenting themselves. Yes, yes. Okay. So I just want to be sure I'm being correct here. Right. You know, um, they said, do you guys want to split up sequences and one of you shoot something and one of you shoot something else? And they said, no, we only work as one. So it is kind of interesting that they have 
split into two. They have, yes. Um, but you know, before that, as we said, they they made um, movies, Speed Racer, Speed Racer, yeah, Cloud 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 Atlas. Who was in Cloud Atlas, Josh? Uh, Tom, Tom Hanks. Hanks yeah, that movie is the so name bad. In. That movie's so bad. It's yeah. not. Yeah, it's not very good. Jupiter Ascending, which is also Jupiter Ascending, is terrible, but is one of the best bad movies in my but, opinion. But Dave, but you think Speed Racer is a good movie? Speed Racer, I think, is a genuinely one tell of my us favorites. Why. Tell us what's good about it. I it, haven't seen it. It's you haven't seen it. I will. I'd watch it though. It's pretty much as far over the top visually as you can get. It is the most visually just crazy, just candy colors and neon lights shooting at you. It's it's just insane. It's like Wreck It Ralph. It's like Wreck It Ralph, but real life. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of the, like I didn't like Speed Racer when I saw it, and I will say basically all of the post Matrix Wachowski projects I haven't really cared for. Um, I haven't watched Work in Progress, but Speed Racer, Cloud Atlas, Jupiter Ascending, Sense8, all of those I found disappointing. But the impressive thing about Speed Racer is that it, it's, it, it's almost entirely edited in a non-linear fashion. Mm. It's like all montage, like the entire movie. There's no like scene transitions. It's, it's hard to even describe. And even if watching it, I was like, no. It's still impressive that they committed to doing something like that. It just it seems weird that they haven't had one, you know, more home run, so to speak. But as we said, you know, they're so committed to doing things their way and not compromising. And, and they're still able to get money for it. They're still able to get financing. I mean, maybe they had to return to the Matrix in order to get another movie financed. But I guarantee you that Matrix Resurrections is 100% what Lana wants it to be and not anything else. Yeah. Now, Dave, tell us about uh, Jean Baudrillard's Simulacra and Simulation, which was required reading for all the cast before they got onto the Matrix project. Well, as you know, I don't read. So uh... <laughs> I, I don't think I read any of that in my philosophy class. But yeah, Baudrillard is a huge. I think he invented that phrase, the desert of the real, which is something that, that Morpheus says to, to Neo. Look at this guy bringing the meat today. I mean, oh, but yeah. I, haven't, I haven't read it. So um, yeah. I, you know, I don't necessarily if know. If Cypher wants a juicy hamburger, you brought that meat, Josh. I did. I did, however, realize, and I don't really like remember any of it, but I went and uh, read my review that I had written of The Matrix Reloaded. And apparently as part of that article, I had read two books on The Matrix and philosophy. That's cool. And it's cool. I don't remember anything about them, but I wrote in my article that I read them. So I uh, assume that I did. Josh gave that a really high review at the time. I did. Yes. I gave it a, a like a four star review. And in my review of The Matrix Revolutions, I... Uh, regretted i wrote that i regretted having given matrix reloaded such a high rating because and i think it's fair because i think as many flaws as the matrix reloaded has it's a it's a middle chapter it's like the empire strikes back or something and if the matrix revolutions really brought it all home really strongly you could look at that second movie and say hey you know what it's a bumpy thing but it's 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 teeing things up and yeah, but I wouldn't have gone with The Empire Strikes Back because that's the best of the original trilogy. Well, right. right. I'm just saying that it could have it's positioned that way. Right. It's positioned in a way where it's it's a it's not a complete story. It's leaving the characters in this dark place and it's putting things in place for the big finale. And if the finale had worked, then you would have been able to rate that other movie higher. Um, we kind of talked about all the things that Keanu Reeves has done and is doing. 
Carrie Ann Moss, we agree, super talented, maybe didn't find the opportunities that she deserved off of this film. Yeah, I mean, she works a lot and is, you know, in a lot of TV stuff. Mm -hmm. She had a recurring role on all the various Marvel shows on Netflix. And, you know, working for Marvel is is a pretty solid move. I was going to mention, as you know, I'm a fan of the Nordic noirs. Uh, She did this thing, and I don't think it had been done before. She was on a show called Wisting. Um, which I believe takes place in Norway. And it's, a, it's, I think, the most expensive Nordic noir they ever made. But they brought over these two FBI agents from America to help solve these cases. And she's basically the lead for the first five episodes. And then that story wraps up and then she's gone. And then there's a second five episodes in the same season. But she's, she's very good, you know? I, yeah. I like her. And she's, as we said, I think she could have, and whatever reason that she didn't, but, you know, she certainly could have become uh an action star in her own right i think so i think again it was just that you know 20 years later she would have been yeah uh fishburn works all the time he's in everything and he's adept in in both drama and comedy we know that yeah i mean he's also a really working tv actor you know i think i i wrote something recently on the revival of csi and it's like you forget lawrence fishburn was the lead of csi for like three seasons it's so random he can do anything yeah he's he's great don't forget to mention that he reunited with keanu and john wick yeah he is in all the john wick movies so um and and speaking of do you have a favorite keanu movie jason whoa it's the matrix okay no yeah yeah i'm trying to think of what else it could be yeah no i was noting down because i mean he does have a bit of range you know i was noting down a few things that i've liked post matrix um Mike Mills, Thumbsucker, which I think is kind of underrated. That's a good movie. And I want to say, Josh, like after this, and I want you to keep going with your list, but I think that I'm glad you brought that one up because he took those chances, right? When he didn't have to. And you got to credit this guy for being like, hey, I now have these opportunities and I'm really going to go out and explore what I can do. What is he like a doctor in that one? A chiropractor? Yeah, he's a doctor and he kind of gives the main, the teen care. It's like a coming of age story and gives the teen main character some advice. Yeah. Um. You know, A Scanner Darkly, I love Richard Linklater's yeah, film, sure. which is certainly Matrixy. Um, the Bill and Ted sequel recently was, for a many, many decades later sequel, quite good, I thought. The first one is so good, though. It, it's, it's, the, this one's good, but they don't live up to the first yeah, one. Yeah, it's hard to do. Yeah. Um, and, a, and a smaller movie, and, and a part that's sort of not necessarily 100% in his wheelhouse, uh, Destination Wedding, with him and, and Winona Ryder, which is this kind of, a dark comedy where he plays this very like cynical character and it seems outside of Keanu's uh, range, but he does a good job of it. And of course he and Winona Ryder have, have great chemistry. So together. Josh, you're not feeling, feeling Minnesota. I've never, <laughs> I've never seen that. Have Me you? neither. Okay. No, but um, no, you mentioned some good ones. Bill and Ted is again, it's as iconic to me as the matrix. Uh, Dave, do you have a favorite uh, Keanu Reeves I mean, movie I feel like that we- you mention in every episode we do of piecing it together? What are you talking about, John Wick? Oh, okay. I, who knew? Specifically, so. John Wick Chapter Three. By the way, that's that's my favorite. Cool. Yeah. I Dave loves John Wick. Yeah, John Wick is cool. I I feel like those movies are a bit overrated. Yeah, but, but by the way, he's really interesting in the Neon Demon. Also, that was like a really oh, yeah, unique. That's a movie out of his wheelhouse kind of movie. Yeah, I don't know if I liked that movie, but it's it's something. Yeah. Hey, uh, you know Hugo Weaving, Joey Pants, working actors. Joey Pants, excellent turn as Ralphie Cifaretto. 
on The Sopranos. Nobody said who were just like that. <laughs> <laughs> Hugo Weaving has managed to be in like so many blockbuster franchises. In addition to this, and we mentioned The Lord of the Rings, he's the villain in the first Captain America movie. He's a voice in the Transformers movies. He was V and V for Vendetta. I mean, that, that's that's pretty amazing. Um, and I have to say, just randomly recently, I watched uh, the not particularly beloved uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt series, Mr. Corman, on Apple TV+, which I quite liked. And there's one episode where Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character hangs out with his father, who's this kind of drunken ne'er-do-well who really abandoned him and the whole episode i'm like man this guy is good who plays his dad and it was hugo weaving that's it fantastic was so different from anything we've seen him do dave you are our resident video game expert have you either played one uh any of these matrix video games and two keanu is the voice of cyberpunks 2077 right um i have not played any of them but definitely the enter the matrix has like a huge cult following that was like the big online game that is considered to be canon for these movies um and then just this week at the time of this recording they just unveiled this like Really cool thing, The Matrix Awakenings. I don't know if you guys saw this, but it's a demo, essentially, of the new Unreal Engine 5, which is what they build games in nowadays. It basically looks like 100% like a real movie. It's the most impressive thing I think I've seen in the world of video games in forever, and it's a total Matrix scenario. Is it so? It's a demo. Like, can you play it's it or playable. you just watch it? It's totally playable, but it just feels like you're in a movie while you're. And I just watched. It's like a like a 15 minute playthrough you can watch on YouTube. It looks incredible. Oh, nice. Yeah, okay. I mean, neither of us, Jason, we're not video gamers, so this is all kind of lost on us. No, but Josh, you did see Keanu, right? By Key and Peele. Oh yeah, but you know <laughs> that's just a movie about a cat. Yeah, but it's named Keanu. It is named Keanu. Sure. That is that is true. Um, one other the one other legacy thing I want to mention is. The stunt performers, I mean, we talked about Yuen uh, Wu-Ping, but uh, Chad Stahelski, who went on to direct sure. the John Wick movies, yeah. uh, was Keanu Reeves' stunt double in this film, and that's where they first connected and led to those movies. Um, and Nash Edgerton, as well, as a stunt performer in this film who's gone on to become a director, uh, a writer, director, and actor. So, I mean, just so much talent that, that came out of these films is, yeah. is amazing. Agreed. Is, uh, anything else on the legacy you want to mention? Um, there's a new one coming out. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 did, we did say we did say that. Oh, oh, okay. Then I'm good. Yeah. Okay, thank you, thank you, Jason. <laughs> so that's the Matrix, and that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us in the Matrix. Yeah, all over the Matrix. But if we're actually in the Matrix, and that and what we are following us on is that a Matrix inside of the Matrix? Whoa. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. We are all over social. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on any of your favorite socials. Go for Jason um, is not in the Matrix because it's such a bad website. Um, AwesomeMovieYear.com. That's a serviceable website. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. Josh Bell hates everything.com is my also not great website. There might be some Matrix content on there from a long ass time ago. Uh, Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And as we said, listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Piecing Pod and join our own little matrix, the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces Facebook group. So, Jason, we have another bonus coming up. What is next? Josh, we're full of holiday goodness. And we had one more we have to do. 
We've talked about it. 2003 was filled with holiday cheer in the form of films. And this is the last one we want to cover for now. It's called Love Actually. And actually, people love it. So tune in next time for Love Actually. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.